welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Jason Cherry on August 28th, Lord's Day Service. to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning are found in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, these are difficult things to think about. And so, Father, may your Spirit give us grace this morning. May your Spirit give us clarity and open hearts as we think about what Jesus has said in this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most Christians today are familiar with the problem of frequent divorce in our culture. They know about the rise of no-fault divorce in the last 50 years, and they know that when the family is destroyed, society is destroyed. And some Christians today may even think this is a new and unique problem in the history of the world. But in reality, questions about divorce were of interest even in the time of Christ. It was a point of debate in the rabbinical schools of Hillel and Shimei. Well, what were they debating? Well, for them, the debate was not whether or not divorce was legitimate. For them, the debate was what constituted justifiable grounds of divorce. And the debate centered around Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, where Moses said a man could divorce his wife if there is some indecency in her. So what does that mean? Well, that's what the whole debate was about, and it was a debate that had raged on for over a thousand years before Christ. And so the school of Hillel claimed that this meant a man could divorce his wife for anything that displeased him, say, burning dinner. The school of Shimei claimed you could get divorced for only four reasons. Adultery, which is what they said Deuteronomy 24 is referring to, And then also, lack of food, lack of clothing, and lack of conjugal rights. And for that, they pointed to Exodus 21. 
And so you need to see that questions about divorce were debated in the time of Christ. In fact, they were debated for many, many years before the time of Christ. And then when Herod and Herodias each divorce their spouse to marry each other, as we saw back in Mark chapter 6, that brings the subject of divorce back into open public discourse. Furthermore, culturally, the Roman Empire was a place where divorce was easy and frequent, and God's people were caught up in the conventions of society. And so you need to see this history, you need to see this context, because that is shaping this dialogue that's happening, happening between the Pharisees and Jesus. And so with this history, with this context, a group of Pharisees try to entrap Jesus with a question about divorce. Now how are they trying to entrap Jesus? Well, again, if you understand the long history of the debate, then you realize what's actually going on here. They come to Jesus and they ask him, basically, is it lawful to get divorced for any cause, like the school of Hillel claims? And whatever Jesus answers, he's going to offend somebody. He's going to offend maybe Herod, as John had done back in Mark chapter 6. And or he's going to alienate one or both of the rabbinical schools. And so in verse 3, Jesus, rather than giving a direct answer, responds with a counter question. And he says, what did Moses command you? So the reference here to Moses is pointing us again back to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. And notice again from the beginning, Jesus' answer about divorce and marriage is grounded in the word of God rather than the lusts of man. And he's pointing us to Deuteronomy 24. So what does Deuteronomy 24 teach about divorce? Well, it really teaches three things about divorce. Deuteronomy 24 taught first that if a man finds indecency in his wife, in other words, if she committed adultery, then divorce is permitted, but not required. And so in this way, a man could not just divorce his wife for frivolous reasons like the school of Hillel claimed. The second thing Deuteronomy 24 teaches about divorce is that if a man divorces his wife for a just cause, he has to give her a certificate of divorce. And the reasoning for this is this makes divorce a legal action, establishing the seriousness of it all. And the third thing Deuteronomy 24 teaches about divorce is that if she marries another man after the divorce, he cannot have her back. And so this, again, reinforces the seriousness of the matter, but it also establishes the finality of the matter. And so in Deuteronomy 24, divorce is burning a bridge. And, and the point of this is to protect the woman. This protects the woman from being tossed around like a hot potato. Now, some of us might look at Deuteronomy 24 and say, huh, I've never really noticed that before. I didn't know that God allowed divorce. I didn't know that God allowed something he hates. And that's a very complicated element to this discussion and to this passage. And you might look at this and you might think, well, why did God's law permit divorce? And that's what Jesus is addressing now in Mark chapter 10, verse 5. Why did God's law permit divorce? Jesus said, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this 
commandment. And so God permits what he hates because of your hardness of heart. God, through Moses, permitted divorce. Not because God likes divorce, but because of their hardness of heart. And so, as we saw Deuteronomy 24, Moses allowed under certain circumstances for men and women to do what men and women ought not to do. And that's complicated. It's a complicated question that hangs over much of this entire discussion. And so in this way, God doesn't encourage divorce under those circumstances. He merely permits it. And so because of your hardness of heart, God permits what he does not like. Now in the Old Testament, that expression, hardness of heart, refers to rebellion against God. And so what Jesus is saying here is, because of your rebellion against God, he permits divorce. Because of their rebellion against God's will, and because of the layers of messiness that this, this creates, God legislated for a situation that was not part of God's original design of marriage. And again, this is very difficult because here we find a distinction between God's ultimate intention for the human race and then his temporary accommodation to human unwillingness to accept this higher standard, or at least this human inability to accept this high standard. And so again, we need to see the full history of what's going on here. This history that had raged on for a thousand years, this historical debate that lays behind the Pharisees' interaction with Jesus. And so seeing this and seeing what Deuteronomy 24 is establishing and then seeing what Jesus says in verse 5, this now prepares us to really see and appreciate Jesus' response to the Pharisees. And in Jesus' response, he widens the discussion to include other scripture that the rabbis were not properly taking into account. In other words, Jesus shows them that there is an essential purpose of God in marriage that they are missing. They are reducing their theology of marriage down to the meaning of the certificate of divorce that Moses permitted. And so beginning in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, Jesus shows them that there are two fundamental things about marriage that are essential to living inside the truth of God. And so there are two fundamental things we must see about marriage in this passage. The first fundamental thing about marriage is that marriage is from the beginning. Marriage is from the beginning of creation. So look with me now, Mark chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And so we see here that from the beginning, God had a certain design. From the beginning, God made them male and female. And so God made them male and female. So that not only establishes a familial structure, 
for society. That not only uh, it guides and directs what society should look like and what society should be based on, but also God made the male and female, which means God here is making moral categories. And so that means then that things like husband, wife, father, mother, son, daughter, female, male, marriage, family, union. These things are all defined by God from the beginning. Not only to shape the family, not only to organize society, but they're created by God, defined by God from the beginning to establish the moral meaning of these things. Now, a few moments ago, we pointed out the lamentable state of marriage and family today, where we live. You know it all, high divorce rates, failing families, and the subsequent effect on society. And so, many of us look at this, and we look at the sad state of society today, and we think, well, why are so many people who live in American culture, why are so many people having children out of wedlock and, and living in single-parent homes? And why are they redefining marriage? Why are they redefining male and female? Why are they redefining husband and wife? Why are they redefining the family? Why are they making such a mess of this? Why has our society turned insane when it comes to marriage and family? Well, Jesus in verse 6 answers the question of why. Many people in our society don't acknowledge that God is the creator. They don't acknowledge, as Jesus says in Mark chapter 10, verse 6, they don't acknowledge that from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. They don't acknowledge that these definitions have already been given. They don't acknowledge that they are to then receive these definitions, not to play with them, not to toy with them, not to change them. They don't believe that God made them. Any healthy view of marriage and family starts with belief in the God of the Bible. If you remove belief in God of the Bible, then your belief, your understanding of marriage and family will be faulty. And so, why is there such a mess of these things in society today? Well, it's because a lot of people don't believe in the God of the Bible. This is what Jesus is saying in verse 6. They don't believe that God made them, and they don't believe that God made each person male and female. This is why our society's view of marriage and family is broken. And so according to verse 6, Jesus is saying that a right view of marriage begins with two presuppositions. First, God is the creator. And second, God made people male and female. A healthy view of marriage begins with those two presuppositions. If you remove those two presuppositions, you have an unhealthy view of marriage. And yes, there are many layers to explaining the many broken families in our broken society. But the explanation begins with the fact that people are rejecting that God is their creator and they are rejecting that God makes them male and female. Any proper view, any healthy view of marriage begins with those two presuppositions. And as an aside, if you are here today and you see that your marriage is in trouble, that it needs work, understand that 
we do offer marriage counseling here. If you need marriage counseling from the elders of Trinity Reformed Church, we do that. But you have to understand that when we do that, we always begin with these two presuppositions. We begin with the fact that God has made us, that the God of the Bible exists and that He has made us, and that He has made the world in a certain way. And He has made marriage in a certain way. And so the goal of this marriage counseling session is to understand that God made us and that He made the world in a certain way, and then to look here at your marriage and see where it's not conforming to God's design, and then trying to bring those things together. That is what we do in marriage counseling. We always begin with those two basic presuppositions. The goal is to try to understand what God intends for marriage and to help us get to that spot. And so we have to start with those two basic facts. You know, we are not the creation. I'm sorry, we are not the creator. We are the creation. And the problem here is that too many of us look at the world as if we are the creator and we get to create what we want and define what we want. And that then gets carried over to marriage. And so we get to define marriage how we want. But we are not the creator. God is. Which means in matters of marriage and divorce, we are the creation and not the creator. And so we receive God's definitions. We don't make them. The American culture of divorce is the natural consequence of losing the two foundational presuppositions of marriage. And in case you miss them, I'll say them again because they're that important. The two foundational presuppositions of marriage are that God is the creator and God made them male and female. You know, life right now in our society has never been more full of confusion and uncertainty. The average person, spiritually, has never felt so weak and helpless. We are the most physically comfortable, spiritually uncomfortable people in the history of the world. And that is why the statistics show such high numbers of depression and loneliness and malaise and divorce. We as a society have struck ourselves dumb by denying God is the creator and by denying that God makes people male and female. And without God and his word, we are out to sea, lost with no navigation. Now, I don't want to mislead you here. Just agreeing that God is the creator and that God makes people male and female does not magically make for a perfect marriage. It's like just intellectually agreeing to those things isn't going to just magically make for this perfect marriage. It's not the one and only action that makes for a healthy marriage. But you have to understand that those two presuppositions are entrance into further actions. They are entrance into larger actions that will, in accordance with God's Spirit working through God's Word, ministered by Christ's church, will bring your marriage into a state of grace. And so the first fundamental thing about marriage is that marriage is from the beginning. 
The second fundamental thing about marriage that Jesus wants us to see in this passage is that marriage from the beginning was intended to be permanent. Marriage from the beginning was intended to be permanent. So look with me again beginning in verse 6. But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And so you see right there, verse 9, this, this, this notion of permanency that was given to marriage from the beginning. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. But going back now to verse 6, notice what Jesus is doing. Jesus is quoting in verse 6, Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, where it says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. So notice this, God made man in his image. And that has meaning for our marriages. So God made man in his image. Okay, so that means, let's think about God. We're made in the image of God. Who is God? Well, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, and they are inseparably one divine being. And so, just as God is inseparably one divine being, so too He intends for male and female in marriage to become one being that is not divided. And then in verses 7 and 8, Jesus quotes from Genesis 2:24. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. So what is Jesus saying here in verses 7 and 8? Well, notice the key phrases. Verse 7, hold fast. And verse 8, one flesh. And then verse 8 again, one flesh. You see, this is God's ultimate intention for marriage. It's a permanent union of one man and one woman in marriage. And so we see here, beginning in verse 6, all the way through verse 9, that God's ideal for marriage from the beginning is permanence, which then means that permanence from the beginning of your marriage must be the goal. And yes, there are some exceptions to the principle of permanency that we'll touch on in a minute, but you have to understand that when two people get married, they have to go into it with the expectation that this is until death do us part. We can't go into marriage saying, well, you know, if it doesn't work out, I can just get divorced. No, we must go into it with this understanding, with this expectation that this is intended to be until death do us part. That must always be the goal when two people get married. Divorce is always a sad lapse from God's ideal. God's design for marriage is one man with one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. And that language, one flesh, refers to the conjugal part of marriage. And that means that Jesus is saying by implication and this is good for all of us to hear this, all of the covenant people, young and old alike, in one room, to hear this together. The implication of the one flesh language is that proper sex is between one man and one woman in a lifelong, committed, marital relationship with each other. And this is partly why Peter Kreeft has said, uh, referring to the language of one flesh, he said that divorce is a form of violence talks about it as suicide of the one flesh. Because remember what verses 7 and 8 said. 
the two people become one. And so the effect of Jesus' words here in verses 6 through 9 is to condemn divorce as contrary to God's will. Jesus here is setting forth this high standard of marriage. And now does this mean that permanency is the only ideal for a healthy marriage? Does this mean then that, okay, all I've got to do is grit my teeth and stay with it till I die, and I'm going to honor the Lord in this marriage? No, that's not what this means. Permanency is not the only thing that makes for a healthy marriage. Elsewhere, Scripture tells us that there are other things about the doctrine of marriage. Lots of things. We don't have time to get into it in this sermon, but there are lots of things about marriage, things about vocation and roles, things about human nature and forgiveness that all work together to make for a healthy marriage. But in this passage that we're looking at today in Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12, Jesus is giving us this principle of permanency, that when we enter into a marriage, our goal should be till death do us part. So then what does the principle of permanency look like in practice? Well, for you, permanency means staying with it. Permanency means staying with it, even when it's hard, even when your spouse annoys you, and even when you annoy your spouse. Even when you go through a difficult season, with the marriage, with the family, with the extended family, with the job and all the pressures that kind of come in on a family and make the marriage difficult, the principle of permanency says, stay with it. And I don't mean to suggest that all or most of you have considered not staying with it when things were hard, but undoubtedly some of you have. Undoubtedly some of you have thought about leaving when things got hard. And so, to that, we must press Jesus' principle of permanency directly against the common idea that marriage today can end as easily as it begins. And in the first century, a lot of God's people were caught up in the conventions of society because the Roman Empire was a place where easy divorce happened a lot. And today, God's people may be caught up in the conventions of society. And when you look at it today, people spend a lot of time wishing they were elsewhere and otherwise. People today spend a lot of time wishing they had someone else's life, wishing they had someone else's circumstances, wishing they had better companions. But in your marriage, staying with it as a general rule is the best thing to do. But again, the goal isn't to just stay with it in a grit-your-teeth sort of fashion. The goal is to stay with it joyfully so that we can honor the Lord with this family. And so I'm convinced that the single most important thing that you can do to stay with it joyfully is to be done with sinful comparisons. It is sinful comparisons that draw your eyes outward. We must be done with sinful comparisons. We must be done with those wishes that tempt you to leave rather than stay. And so whatever it is that's feeding those sorts of thoughts, whether it's social media, whether it's the movies you're watching, whether it's the friends you have, you must run 
from anything that is going to plant the seed that's going to cause you to look elsewhere. That's going to cause you to want to run away. Be done with sinful comparisons. And if you do that, then you will be on the path to joyfully fulfilling your role in this marriage. You know, the children of Israel had other prospects too. To them, it seemed logical to make foreign treaties. And God responded by sending them the prophet Isaiah, who told them to knock it off and to appreciate what they actually had. And what did they actually have? They had a covenant with the God of creation. Why are they looking elsewhere? Fulfillment is not found elsewhere. Fulfillment is found in this covenant right now that God has given you. And so Israel's fulfillment was to keep their covenant with the Lord rather than go elsewhere. And likewise for you. Now, there are a couple of qualifications we have to make to the idea of permanency. There are a couple of exceptions to the idea of permanency that we must mention to more fully round out this discussion. They're not really featured here. That's not the point of this passage. But when you look at marriage on the whole from the New Testament, you see that there are a couple of exceptions to the idea of permanency. The first, in light of Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, we know that Jesus allows for a similar provision of divorce, as did Moses, though Jesus clarifies exactly in what scenario divorce is permissible, namely in the case of adultery. And so that means that adultery is an exception to Jesus' principle of permanency. And the second exception in the New Testament to the principle of permanency is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 12 through 16 where there Paul says that desertion or abandonment is another scenario where divorce is permissible. So there are two New Testament qualifications to Jesus' idea of permanency. It is adultery and abandonment or desertion. But again, realize the biblical principle here is not that you should get divorced in the case of adultery or abandonment, but that you could. Now, again, you might look at this and think, why would God permit this? Well, again, back to verse 5. Because of your hardness of heart, God permits divorce in very limited circumstances. And again, realize, too, there's a big history here leading up to this conversation between Jesus and the Pharisees. Many Jews, really for thousands of years, there was an entire group of Jews who believed that based on Deuteronomy 24 and some of the theology that had developed, they believed that in a case of divorce, you had to get divorced. Or that in a case of adultery, you had to get divorced. But what Jesus is doing here in this passage, and especially in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, is he's basically saying, no, 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 hang on. He allowed you to divorce your wife in, in that situation. Allowed, not required. And that's really the main thing that Jesus is trying to counteract in these teachings. Now again, this is difficult stuff. This is a very difficult topic. And so there's one final thing to consider as we conclude. Now right now I'm speaking to many people who either are divorced or who have close friends and family who are divorced. And you've sat and listened to Mark chapter 10 verses 1 through 12. You've read the words of Jesus on the matter. You've listened to this sermon on this very sensitive and difficult topic. 
And you need to know that God can forgive divorce as well as any other sin. And so that means, listen very carefully, if you were the offending party in your divorce, know that the God of creation who makes people male and female, He has grace big enough to cover it. Our God is one who is patient and kind, and He forgives those who are unfaithful when they cast themselves upon Christ and repent of their sin. And as Christians, the gospel of Christ, crucified and resurrected for our sins, is the foundation of every part of our lives, which means God can forgive divorce. Christ is there to forgive you. Christ is there to heal you and to make you new. Christ paid the penalty of the guilt of your sin. And through faith in Christ's substitutionary death, your guilt of sin is buried forever. And so through faith in Christ and repentance of sins, you belong to Christ. You belong to Christ. And He will not leave you or forsake you. His grace is big enough to cover that sin. Thanks for listening. If you want to find out more, check out our website at trinityreformedkirk.com. That's trinityreformedkirk.com.